Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, it's Mark here. I realised recently on Patreon that we have not had any new patrons for a couple of months, so you guys should just go and sort that out. Um, in the time of Corona, <laughs> we're all in furlough, apart from Anna here, and we need money to buy yeast, because I still can't fucking find any, right? No matter where I go. <laughs> I told you, man. I've got hunters. <laughs> so please give us some money so I can go and order some off eBay, probably from Japan or something. I don't know if I'd be using the, the yeast bought on eBay, man. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, unknown origin. That's like using insulin bought in Alabama. <laughs> uh, so go to patreon.com forward slash unsungpod and you can see our fine rewards and decide which one is for you and how much money you want to throw away every month and we will sort that out for you, hopefully. <laughs> Not that it matters. <laughs> You're not going to get it anyway, are you? It remains to be seen. <laughs> but yes, please go. Please go do that. We would appreciate your support. And in these difficult times, we fully understand if you feel like you can only afford to give us 80% of a respectable <laughs> donation. <laughs> <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. Uh, Chris is currently throwing things around the room because not only not only are we doing it remotely, but we can now see each other for the first time in about three weeks. Felt this would give us extra chemistry. Yeah. 
And I think we, we work a lot of uh, subtle bodily cues <laughs> in Dave's wardrobe and we've been missing those two important elements for weeks now. It's all about eye contact for me. It does work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, l- looking at Chris is deep in the eyes while he, well, you can see his holy socks. <laughs> but yes, this week we are joined by Anna Goldthorpe again um, as we do this second punk episode. So hi. Thanks for oh. having me back. It's good to be here. It's good. It's good. To From have my bedroom again. <laughs> Last time I yeah. was uh, doing the self isolation before the COVID nineteen really hit Scotland. I think you've, you've probably got the world record for isolation right now. You've been at it for ages. I know. I was isolating before it was cool. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you join us at the, the week we are doing the distillers. Um, this week we're doing Sing Sing Death House, and it should be a fun old chat. But before we get into that, has anybody got any culture they want to share with us that they've consumed over the course of the past seven days? But I think that's, I mean, we <laughs> both know that that's a, just a, that's just a cue for me to talk to you for a moment about how weird a load, it was. A loaded no question, audience. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we worked on that before yeah. the show. Uh, yeah, Mark and I both decided to watch WrestleMania split over two nights for the first minute, time because it's a show. I was going to do it. You do it. <laughs> <laughs> a, a show too big for one night uh, <laughs> As opposed to a show too contagious <laughs> for one single sitting um, Yeah, that was that was fascinating Watching wrestling without 80,000 screaming guns is uh, a very odd experience yeah, Really strange And it's also really odd that they're still doing it When a lot of other sports, most other sports, pretty much all sports have stopped With the exception of uh, the Belarusian Premier League, which I keep getting emails from all the bookies about <laughs> randomly, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, the Zanzibar uh, Football League is still going as wow. well. See, these are the these are the things that, that they keep us going in these times. One thing that I've seen is uh, UFC two four nine is still going to go ahead um, on eighteenth April, and apparently it's going to take place on a private island, which means. Uh, Dana White is going to, it's going to be doing Mortal, Mortal Kombat. Kombat. Yeah. It's basically Mortal <laughs> Kombat. Mortal Kombat. <laughs> is it on fantastic. Epstein's Island? It should be on Epstein's Island. Shit. And in between bouts, it's like a platform game where for every hidden child that you find, you get 50 points. <laughs> <laughs> Are the remains of or? 20 points <laughs> but yeah we should probably press on with this episode we've also uh, we, Brea Quinn from the band Baraticus has sent us in like a little voice note because Brea and her sister Ona are big fans of them but uh, Brea had some thoughts and we'll skip over to them later on but yeah Mark this is your choice you might as well get the ball yeah going. so um, as I said at the end of last week's episode I picked this record because I hadn't really f- spent time with it for a long while I don't think I'd listened to it properly since 2010 <laughs> And it came out in 2002 Which is when I first heard it So it's been a wee while Anna, were you OG? Oh aye, oh, aye. I was a mega Distillers fan From when I was 15 So 2001 Yeah, it's about the same time Yeah. Um, so I thought it'd be cool to revisit something And, and kind of get a reappraisal of it To see if it's held, held up I guess Or if it's to the test of time uh, so I picked this one as opposed to Coral Fang, which I think is probably well, it's definitely the biggest distiller's record, right? There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. it was it was on their major label. It was the last distiller's record to the, to date, and a lot of people seem to prefer it over this, which I think is baffling, frankly. Um, but we'll get yeah. into that, I suppose, during this 
uh, episode. But uh, Dave, Chris, did you guys spend much time with Distillers before this? I I think City of Angels was on a Kerrang compilation, as uh, most of my music education was. And uh, yeah, my girlfriend at the time absolutely fucking loved Distillers. I never really got into it. I think once again, my musical upbringing was shaped by the fact that uh, there were no Distillers records in Inverness HMV. So I was never able to buy one and therefore I was never able to get to know it. Yeah, I've kind of always known of them and I know songs, but yeah, never really uh, got to actually sit down with a record before. So Chris, you were like 25 when this record came out. (laughs) (laughs) I was already in my 40s. Um, I know, get us out the road. I really associate Distillers uh, with the process of Belief album by Bad Religion as well because uh, my girlfriend at the time was my girlfriend at the time was a big fan of both and yeah, they were on heavy rotation and and her flat her sister was a big fan too. And I have time for them. I did that weird pruning thing on my my iTunes, which is I used to delete the stuff that I really Mm -hmm. didn't like. I didn't keep just a full album if I thought most of it was dross. And whilst I don't think the Stillers are dross, I only I noticed that I only had about six or seven tracks from across their catalogue on my iTunes. So I do ha- I do think it, at times they were really good, but uh, they, none of their records really grabbed me for the duration. Albeit, you know, a little bit older and I've got a bit more of a considered approach to albums. So I have I've quite enjoyed this one in terms of immersing myself in it. Um, it's not a genre that I listen to a serious amount of stuff from, but. She especially is better than most She's more charismatic, she's a better singer More engaging uh, personality Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got time for it I'd, I had some time for them I mean, I'm going to be the least fashionable person on this panel Because uh, I really like Spinneret So mm-hmm. uh, we can get to that Yeah, okay. I think we'll get to that That's fair, I mean, yeah <laughs> I'm alright <laughs> um, yeah, I can tell you've seen that through gritted teeth. Uh, so the Stillers wasn't actually Brody Dow's first band. She had a band called Sourpuss in what, 95. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. She actually posted yep. a video of their sh- of a concert they played on on her Facebook recently um, in the last couple of years. So it's like somebody recorded their first show. I think it was in high school, and she actually posted it on their Facebook, mm-hmm. so you can actually see see them and hear what they sounded like. I mean, like Distillers and Brody Dahl are sort of inseparable, especially yeah. by the fact that by the time they got to Coral Fang, she was the only original still playing. So we, we will probably use the two interchangeably mm-hmm. at points. But I think it's worth recapping Brody Dahl's backstory mm-hmm. a wee bit because it, it's extremely interesting and it plays, I think, a large part in the trajectory of her band. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from from what Brea was saying as well in her comments, she feels the the same. That a lot of, there was a lot of the personal mixed with the the artistic in terms of how people received yeah. their records. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that when she was a teenager, the way that she got involved with Sourpuss was through like a like School of Rock type thing that she went to in Melbourne, where she met other young musicians and they formed bands. And Sourpuss then got on the bill at, oh, what was the name of the festival? Rock Am Ring? Somersault. Oh, Somersault. 
Right. So, well, Somersault's the one where she met Tim Armstrong. Okay. I know that. Yeah, and that was... 1995. Yeah, that was when she was playing in Surface. She met him backstage. But I actually had also read uh, at one point that she had first met her other future husband, Josh Hom, backstage at a festival when she played with Sourpuss, but I don't know, that might yeah. have just yeah. been... No, I think she was uh, she was 18 when she met him. Uh, it was like 1997 when she met Josh Hom, right, okay. I believe. And she met Tim Armstrong in 1985, so... Yeah. Yeah, they'd, they'd known each other for a while. Um, her real name was Bree Joanna Alice Robinson, uh, she took the name Dal from the actress Beatrice Dal from the film Betty Blue. Uh, she didn't move to LA until she was 18. I'm going to come back to that because I think it's relevant, especially uh, as regards accents. She well, she had she had a fairly difficult childhood. There was a fair bit of sexual abuse, I believe, which she ended up involved in court proceedings till she was like nearly mm-hmm. 15. Related to that, interesting. Uh, There's an interesting point. Was young, with that. She, I don't know if you've got it, but. Um, one of the reasons that no. she moved to LA is because she'd won quite a lot of money from that court case. So that's yeah, kind of what set it. up her and the Thrillers in LA as a band, you know. So I think that's an important thing to, mm-hmm. to kind of highlight there. Like, it probably come up later on, and we will definitely touch upon it, but a lot of people think that Tim Armstrong paid for everything at the start of the band's career, which is completely not the case. He doesn't come out of this... No, he well, does not. <laughs> ...this entire story. <laughs> um, I mean, he'd met her when she was 16, and they married as soon as she mm. turned 18. Uh, he was 30 when he met her. Let's just let that hang in the air a wee bit. Um, he was 30 and then a very successful and influential band. And she was a 16-year-old with drug issues, uh, a history of sexual abuse. And he'd been expelled from like two different Catholic schools. Had, you know, originally had been training as an Olympic swimmer, had dropped out, had gone into, let's say, alternative punk lifestyle, drinking, smoking a lot of weed. She she was like a troubled young woman and she met this considerably older man, at least if you take it, you know, proportionally. And I think the difference between like a 16-year-old meeting a 30-year-old, it's, it's very different from like a 25-year-old meeting a 40-year-old. Just when someone is that young and that impressionable and coming for that kind of difficult background, especially with drug problems, there's a real level of dependency mm-hmm. that goes with that. So yeah, she moved to LA when she was 18, but I mean, she was married to a famous American musician by that point. I, I, Whilst she probably used her own money to do that, I'm not saying that Tim Armstrong paid her flights. How much of that was done in order to be there and to be with him and to see this is our big break? There's there's a lot of influences going on in the background there. But yeah, so yeah, she moved to LA uh, in 1998. She formed the Distillers with, with someone called Kim G, <laughs> which I just think is really funny. They, they they changed lineup quite a bit, but that was a lineup for Kim G, her. And two others. Do you guys know who they were for the first album, the yeah. eponymous one? Yeah, it was Casper. Uh, was her uh, the other woman's nickname, but her name was actually uh, Rose. Rose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the guy's name it was Matt Young. Yeah, he was the drummer. So they recorded the eponymous album, the debut one yeah. together. What your thoughts on that? Um, I really liked it at the time because I got into them in 2001. So that was the only album that was out for me to access at that point. And I did really enjoy it. I'd first heard, I think I first heard the Distillers through 
Yenar Ansid fan and Distillers been on give them the book compilations and I enjoyed it. I liked their cover of Ask the Angels by Patti Smith. Obviously, a absolutely iconic female punk singer. However, it is just like a a version of Patti Smith's song that's like almost like an impersonation. Mm-hmm. And then there's the wee hidden track at the end that's a solo version of Young Girls that was then later re-recorded for the Sing Sing Death House album. That was a nice wee add-on at the end. There are pretty raw lyrics in it, which I think refer to... Uh, Brodie's teenage years in Melbourne. I believe that Gertie Rouge, who's mentioned in it, was one of her friends as a teenager who was abused as well. Um, so there's a sad story underlying um, there. But aside from that, a decent punk album. I think for me it was just really exciting to get into something that was quite raw with female vocals. Oh, Serena's a pretty good song. Yeah, yeah. that's a good song. I liked it. Yeah. I like Idolist yeah, and the world comes tumbling as well. I think Glosses USA is pretty cool. Gypsy Rosalie is also a highlight, but I think it's, well, on the whole, I think it's probably too long. It's, it's about 40 minutes long and I don't think it really needs to be yeah. that long even though it's got a couple of songs on it under two minutes and one that's under a minute but it's definitely you can see the genesis of our songwriting though right mm-hmm. one of the things which we probably touch upon but I think it's probably worth sort of pointing out this early on is she's got a style and that style is like throughout all of her music I remember when I was a wee guy particularly with Sing Sing Death House a lot of people were saying that, oh, when Coral Fang came out they were like oh I fucking Tim Armstrong helped her write the first two records and then obviously Josh yeah. Holm helped the third one but that's clearly not true because she's got her own voice. I don't mean that like vocally, but, you know, as an artist and you can hear that throughout everything. And it starts here. It does sound a little bit, you know, it's not fully formed yet at this point on this record, not by any means. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. I don't really spend much time with that. Yeah, I think it's a good step stone towards what would become, I guess, her sound, I suppose, or the distiller's sound. Yeah. See, as somebody that doesn't have really doesn't really have a dog in the fight, I would say it's interesting that people think Tim Armstrong wrote songs for the first two albums, given that for me they're better than Rancid songs. So why would he do well, that? Well, it's interesting. You know? It's interesting um, because the reason I was thinking about this when I was doing the notes for Sing Sing Death House, there's a lot of stuff, particularly in Sing Sing Death House, that sounds a bit like Rancid. There's, there's a couple which are like could almost be on Massive 2000 they're, they're kind of yeah definitely kind of self-titled yep. album but when they do the hardcore songs hardcore punk songs are way more hardcore punk and rancid everywhere I think sonically it sounds a bit like rancid Polo because he was so controlling over our career you know like that's that's one of the things that's been quite well documented is he had quite a lot of control over her both with his record and Sing Sing Death House yeah I think he always referred to it as keeping it in the family so who, wor- who she worked with, you know, who was in the band, yeah. the shows she did, the yeah. tours she did, you know, he was very controlling and 
if you're a Brody Dow and you're an armoured by Tim Armstrong, right, and, and, and married to him, like, some of the music's going to rub off on you, right? Clearly it is. Of course. Um, but, I mean, I think saying, going so far as saying, like, Tim helped her write the songs, I think is clearly bullshit. Yeah, but. I would I would totally agree with that. And I, I remember at the time I was on the Distillers Forum and there was loads of folk that would say that stuff about Tim Armstrong, how he'd written the different songs. And see as well how you're talking about how he controlled who she spent time with and the people that she was surrounding herself by. When you look at the sleeve notes on the album, all the thank yous in it are to people who are part of Hellcat Records. It's all familiar names, people who are in different bands that Tim Armstrong was friends with, like Avi Havoc, Nick 13, all of these type of people. And it's just as though it was all consuming for her the relationship and the band and yeah I, I think that he was very controlling and the stuff that you would see people writing about on the internet at the time emphasised that for me Yeah I mean that entire dynamic, the, the age difference, the fact that she was on his label, the fact that she moved thousands of miles the the kind of aspirational nature of it the fact you know he's still he's already a very prominent and highly sought after connection in the music industry there's so many things that speak to an imbalance of power in that relationship and the the very close social circle that seems very managed all these kind of things it's just it's creepy there's, there's no really any more elaborate way to put it it just feels kind of creepy yeah. and you know being on being on Hellcat as well for the first two albums it's like it's too close it seems very very unflattering mm-hmm. in terms of your your opinions of Tim Armstrong as a guy. What I would also say though is, you know, Tim Armstrong back in the day, he was a total babe. So it's not like it's just been, I think, manipulated by his power. I think that you could quite easily get sucked in by someone who's not only in a famous band, but is very physically attractive if you're into the punk scene. So although I believe that he certainly used this situation to his advantage. There must have been love there at a time, at least for both of them for a while. And um, then this is going forward a wee bit, but after the distillers left, Hellcat, I I get the impression that Hellcat records just kind of fell apart. They were their most popular band, aside from Rancid, obviously. And they didn't then seem to have the same roster anymore. They didn't seem to hold the same clout anymore. And he was probably seeing her as a way of continuing to make money. Opinions of him dipped, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, he went out of his way, as we'll no doubt mention, to rubbish her. I mean, to blacklist anybody involved in mm-hmm. the band, yeah. effectively, on the on the punk scene, using all his influence. I mean, that does not help the picture in retrospect as regards how healthy and balanced the relationship was. What you end up with is, a, a, without any definitive proof, you end up with a lot of like red flags and some really manipulative and quite nasty behaviour. So it's it's, I mean, obviously we don't have... The insight, but I think he, he does nothing throughout the course of the next however many years to really turn that around, including when it, she gets married to Josh Holm and he's sending Josh Holm death threats. And it, he, he come out with this with no sympathy for Tim Armstrong. Oh, so. Chris, he's a total right. creep. Holy. He's a total creep. Yeah. I remember not long after they had broken up, 
Rancid were on tour and Rancid and Alkaline Trio were both playing at the Barras. Alkaline Trio on the Thursday or the Friday, say, and then Rancid the next night. And Tim Armstrong and Lars Friedrichsen were at the gig and the two of them were hanging about outside the girls' toilets. There was a queue at the girls' toilets and they were just standing at the queue, like chatting up all the wee lassies that were waiting to go in and use the toilet. And I remember being so shocked because it was these guys from this famous punk band that I loved, but also that even at that time, I still could recognise, oh God, that is so creepy that he got with Brody when she was so young and he's clearly trying to repeat that same pattern of going after young women. Totally like, sorry, just there's so much about punk that you want to sort of idealise in the sense that it's a reaction to the excesses of cock rock and of pop and all those kind of horrible corrupting influences of money. Then you see people like that and you realise, no, it's fucking not. No, no, it's I not know. at all. Like, look at like brand new. I mean, it's absolutely not. Yeah, okay, maybe it's more endemic in a culture like hair metal 80s stuff where they brag about it but it's, it, it's surreptitiously it's it's prevalent within a lot of the punk stuff as well and that's what we're only realising. I was going to say that um, I'm probably going to, ha- I'm taking a much harder line than this. I, qu- I like Rancid or liked Rancid um, and La- I think Lars, Lars yes. Ferguson is, is one of the most professional men um, for the most part but fuck it man, it's predatory behaviour this is a guy who clearly is looking to take advantage of somebody's dependency issues whether that is psychologically or otherwise, and the, the exerting that that amount of control over her uh, at such a young age is, and and then reacting so viscerally when they broke up as well is mm-hmm. is definitely a result of someone who is yes clearly a broken person and of himself like his his uh, his trials with you know drinking drugs and all that are very well documented but you know, that is properly like he's he's taking advantage of somebody there. Can I just make an acknowledgement, actually, from what Anna said? I'm saying, oh, we're only just realising it. Anna just said it herself. Like, young women in the punk scene knew it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's us men that, that just didn't want to see it about the people that we really liked, right? So, you I mean, you saw that. When, when was that gig that you're talking about, Anna, with the toilets? Uh, well, it would have been not long after they broke up and Coral Frank came out in 2003. I think, was that not when Rancid just came out as well? Up, so. that, that, like the, uh, the, the major label record they did as well, Indestructible. Oh, the, oh did we done that um, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I, yeah my been, point, my, my been. point being, this this wasn't a secret for young women that were going to punk shows. This was just this was just uh, very selective on the on, on the part of us, Mark, Dave. We just didn't really want to know these things about people that we thought were an answer to the excesses of these other genres. Also, worth saying, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like I'm defending them, but like at the time as well, the access to that knowledge was not as readily available as it is now. Was well, it? Maybe it all, was. All you're going. Maybe young. Maybe women were saying it. We just didn't know it's what it is possible. Um, but like, well, I don't know. What I would say about it is that. So as a teenager in the punk scene in Glasgow and touring bands coming over, n- nobody talked about feeling as though they were being exploited or taken advantage of when bands came here on tour. But certainly the young women at the time, myself included, actively encouraged each other to go and speak to the guys in the bands and then other stuff may have happened with them. But I never knew of anybody feeling like it was wrong at the time. But now, looking back on it and looking back on my own experiences, realising that was so wrong that these men were so much older 
and taking full advantage of that situation. It's hindsight for both of us, I think. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the reason, though, that they talk about the ability to make certain decisions, though, isn't it? If you're, if you're a young person, I mean, I was the same. Like, you're not making particularly informed and sensible decisions if you're a young woman daring your friend to go, oh, go up and try and you know, get off him, get off him. That's because you're young. Yeah. And that's why you're you're vulnerable because you make stupid, rash decisions and older, m- manipulative, opportunistic people are ready to take advantage of them and you maybe don't necessarily know what you're getting into and then you're in over your head and end up doing something that you didn't actually want to do. Yeah, when I was, when I was like an 18-year-old or 16-year-old boy and I'd make a stupid decision and end up with my finger stuck in something... Or you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, people weren't. <laughs> me, me too, Weaver. Me too. Weren't, you know, taking advantage of me, of me or whatever. So yeah, that's the difference. That's exactly what statutory rapes about. You know, what I mean, it's not about is there love there, is there? But it's it's fact is no, you're you're not ready to make these kind of decisions. Sit the fuck down. <laughs> like we're making it for you. You'll you'll make a mess of this. And unfortunately, there's too many people sitting there like Tim Armstrong waiting for somebody. Just qualify 16 Perfect Yeah totally I know that was a bit of a tangent But the point was like The, the allegations I think Are rancid Tim Armstrong Being behind Their better material Early mm-hmm. on I, I don't really buy I, I'm not saying that There's not a wee bit of influence I'm sure everybody's been influenced But this is the same argument That fucking Courtney Love Faced with mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain And there's more than a few Parallels between Brody Dahl For And sure. Courtney Love And I don't think Brody Dahl really benefits For that to be fair to her No um, But I, I would say one of the comparisons is the voice and in some respects Brody Dow does invite that criticism because there is no way I mean she was a big Hole fan mm-hmm. she was a big fan of Nirvana she was a big fan of West Coast and Northwest American music when she was growing up albeit she kind of got into punk more but the fact that she moved to LA when she was 18 I mentioned I would come back to this she moved to LA when she was 18 and by what a year and a half later she's recording that album and the West Coast American drawl is so pronounced, it's so strong. You're just asking for criticism. She's got a really powerful voice, and I like her voice more when you hear less of the Seattle yeah. accent mm-hmm. in it, because it sounds more like her. And I, I think she's a great singer. It's just as frustrating when she strays into that emulation territory of Courtney Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's a, yeah. a point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just a Trojan horse for all these other arguments yeah. of, oh, she's one of those women that lets guys write her songs. It's like, no, she's not. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, but she was also, at the time, her vocals were compared to Joan Jett, which I think you can totally also hear, hear yeah. in her... And Wendy O. Williams from the Plasmatics. You can hear her as well in them. They've got deeper voices and I think part of the problem is because she impersonates that 
accent that Chris has been talking about, you then just hear Courtney Love in her. You forget that there's all these other female punk singers, rock singers that also have deep voices that were just as iconic for their own bands but Courtney Love's comparison just overrides them all. Listen, I can forgive that because, you know, you're, you're in your early 20s, you're still trying to find who you are as a musician and as a person. You know, who who, who in a band in their early 20s didn't? Yeah, and I think, like, into, you know, the, yeah, totally. there's still bands out there not from America who are playing punk rock with an American accent. Well, in fact, uh, Josh Holm called Tim Armstrong a fake English accent singing fucking copycat <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, it's so it's exactly true. exactly fucking true, man. He sounds like, yeah. he sounds like fucking Joe yeah. Strummer. It sounds like Joe Strummer. He, he's a Joe it's Strummer impersonator. He just wants to fucking be Joe Strummer. Yeah. Hence why yeah. he signed the Mescaleros on Hellcat for a period. He's just, he's a fucking phony, man. Uh, he's a faux punk. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so you mentioned, obviously, after Sing Sing Death House and after her and Tim Armstrong split up. There was a lot of fallout from that. There was a lot of recriminations and basically a PR campaign. To Essentially, yeah. Just in terms of like that that rocky period where she was trying to shake that off. Um, Brea had some kind of interesting observations on that. So we'll play a wee bit of the voice note that Brea sent us about this. Uh, she's in the band Bratikus and Brea's voice is particularly strong and idiosyncratic and has invited quite a few comparisons with Brody Dow. a shame how down on Brodie Dell people are in general. I think maybe one of the reasons is because of that stigma people have about her because of the Tim Armstrong thing. As soon as she had any bit of fame at all, people were like, oh, you're just copying Courtney Love and oh, your your husband's write all your music for you and stuff. It's such a shame that people won't just give her a break and just, I don't know, accept her for what she is and let her just make her music because she's so talented and it's great that she just keeps on going but she just seriously has to put up with so much abuse it must be really difficult a lot of distillers fans who were more oh i'm diehard punk and i only listen to punk music were really quite critical of the spinneret album and were really not very nice about it online and to her and i just think that's a real shame because i think it's some of the best stuff she's ever done the songs are really well crafted everything is just so well put together i just feel each song is so great in its own right and it takes you on a journey it's a shame that people couldn't see past it not being like screamy punk anymore and just enjoy it it's kind of similar to when they put out the two new distiller songs a couple of years ago and they were more in the vein of the stuff that Brody had been doing on her solo album and they weren't quite as shouty and fast as maybe some distiller songs had been in the past and a lot of people were like, oh, what is this? It was just... She's not going to want to play the same kind of music she did when she was 20 years old. Let them have some kind of musical progression. And yeah, they're great songs anyway. I love them. Um, but I thought it was really cool because after they put them out and people had been online bad-mouthing them, the next gig they played, they went on stage and their song that they played as they walked on stage was No Regrets by Edith PF. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> In saying that, though, she definitely 
has obviously a lot of fans as well. I actually got to see her play live in the garage when she came with her solo tour and it was definitely my favourite gig I've ever been to ever in my life. It was all it was just a really nice atmosphere. Everyone was really happy to be there and just there to kind of sing along and have a good time and dance and there wasn't like loads of violent mosh pits and stuff. It was just people who were just overjoyed to be hearing these songs and she came out on stage and they went straight into Die on a Rope and then Bull in a Bullseye. She played Distiller's songs from across all the different albums and she played a spinneret song and she played her solo song. So it was really just the perfect gig to go to for a Brodie Dahl fan. You got to experience a bit of everything because I had been too young to see any of her bands play before. So it was really a really cool moment for me. She was really nice to all the fans and everything and it was just like a really nice experience. And she high-fived me while she was performing Ghetto Love. <laughs> oh, quickly, before I finish, actually, I want to talk about the song Underworld from her solo album because I just think it's incredible. It just it starts off as just kind of a normal rock song and it's really great. And then at the end, she blends mariachi into it and it's just, it's so good. If, if you haven't heard it, you should definitely check it out. <laughs> I think it's interesting that Bria gets compared to Brody because I think I've said to you before, Chris, that I think Bria actually really sounds like either of the female singers in F minus. who were a really powerful punk band who were also on Hellcat at the time. And yeah. um, Brody sang on the Leftover Crack song, mm. Muppet Nambla, and on a different version of that same song called Muppet Namblin, um, it was the women from F- that sang on it. And it's interesting to think about Bria then also sounding like F minus. One of the things I was going to say is like, given that we're still talking about it now, I think it's really interesting that Bria picked up on the fact that Brody Dell often doesn't get the credit she deserves, as we've just discussed earlier on this episode, that that legacy still follows her, even to this day. It's Tim, Tim Armstrong's got quite a lot to answer for because of that. Yeah. You know, that, that, that legacy yeah. seems to, to continue to follow her, even though her music isn't yeah. nothing like any of that anymore. Yeah. And I, I was quite interested to hear Bria's comments about the persecution that Brody suffers from because I didn't realise that that was still a thing. Yeah, same. Because I obviously was in her a long time ago and observed all of the stuff in real time. I saw all of that happening and I still see occasionally things on the internet where something about the distillers is shared and people all respond saying they're not a real punk band. 
I mean, don't even go there on these types of arguments, but to find out that Brea is seeing things where Brody is spoken about so negatively really shocks me because all I see is positive stuff about her and how iconic she is and how she's had such a fantastic career. So it's a wee bit depressing actually to hear that she's still getting that negativity, you know? Yeah, yeah. I also I just think it's interesting that Brea like is in a proper hardcore punk band and I think her favourite album by Distillers is Coral Fang, the mainstream or the more mainstream, the major label one. Yeah, it's interesting that she is such a fan of the one that I don't know, takes melody more seriously, has clean mm-hmm. vocals. Yeah. We spoke a wee bit before the, the recording. She's she's a huge fan of the, the Coral Fang album, I believe, saying that she she can't think of one way it could be better. And I have to say, Mark I'm sure you're going to a wee bit more detail here, but uh, I think it's I think it's much better as an album. Yeah. Um, I think the the, the song the songwriting on it is much more mature and nuanced and varied. It's more dynamic and pace. I, I will I, obviously we'll go over the songs and singing Death House. There's some very very good songs in that, but there's some truly fucking excellent songs on Coral Fang as well as. Not a lot of flab. It's a good length, um, and and in terms of like unsung, I realise it's their most high profile album. But you know, it's kind of surprising to see how poorly Coral Fang actually performed, given when it came out. I mean, that was still a fairly big selling era. Um, it only got to ninety seven in the states and forty six in the UK, despite having like drained the blood and beat your heart out on it. And then when you consider that it's also in amongst some of the album tracks got stuff like The Gallows God. The, the title track Coral Fang and, and it's got that track Dying a Rope which I think's a total fan favourite. Yep. I mean, I, I think it's. I think that is still very unsung for a punk album, and albeit it's their most prominent. But I think over the piece and in, in, in the punk spectrum of things, I think it's it, it it warrants the title more. And I know, like we'll talk about Sing Sing Death House, but there's just a lot of personality that album. Like I said, it's 44 minutes, 11 tunes. Really has a very modest reception uh, in terms of like sales figures. Also, by have you ever noticed with that? You know that album has got that really quite iconic cover of like a nude female body mm. on a crucifix. It's black and white and uh, then red. It was banned. Worn out. So, it was banned. Yeah, it was. Have you seen the second cover? <laughs> yeah, it's the wee animals drawings. It's amazing. It's a, it's a really sarcastic, sort of yellow sunsety cover with giraffes and dolphins yeah. and raccoons and stuff. I like remember that. at the time it was um, was it Walmart had refused to put it on the shelves. Seems like a bomb. Seems like something they do. Yeah, Yeah, and that was why they got the alternative cover. The original artwork was by Tim Presley, was the artist. Chris, it's interesting that you're saying that you like Coral Fang as their best album because to me, I think it's got a more grungy sound. 
So it would fit for does, me that, that that would be more up your street. And if we're talking about the anybody's partner at that time having an influence in their life, as happens with all of us, I think you could probably say, well, maybe then when Brody got in a relationship with Josh, the type of music that he makes would have then encouraged her to perhaps listen to more of that type of rock band or bands that she used to listen to as a teenager when she was in Serpus, when she played in a grunge band and trying a period where she's maybe trying to find herself again and that's yeah, why maybe. there's th been a change. I kind of get the feel, I mean, Josh Holm, more than just being in the band, is a producer. I don't necessarily think it's a, a, a case of him being involved in your songwriting, but I think it's a no. case of him saying, by the way, you've got a great voice. What if you like slowed this down yeah. and let your voice actually come through a wee bit? And then when you hear the Spinnerette album, which I unfashionably think is actually really pretty good, there are a couple of tracks in that, um, All Babes Are Wolves and mm -hmm. uh, Driving Song. I think are as good as anything. It was all, that album was also produced by to be uh, Gil honest. Norton, who you know had done stuff like Foo Fighters and Patti Smith and everything. That the production in that album is quite big. It's it's quite full. It's got that kind of Queens of Stone Age, really quite saturated frequency spread thing. I mean, I think that's as much the result of encouragement from your spouse as opposed yeah, to you know, absolutely. creative involvement. Uh, just saying, look, you don't have to batter away. What about if you try letting this come through? Because she admitted herself, she was listening to Nirvana and Hole and yep. Soundgarden and all these bands way back in the early 90s. So it's not like a new discovery. Totally. And I think it would be insulting to say any different. So Mark, I guess the challenge is uh, looking at the album in a bit more detail. Convince me that it's better than Coral Fang. Uh, now that I've reacquainted myself with this record and listened to it a fair amount over the course of the last week, I don't think the Stellars have made a good solid front to back consistent record. <laughs> okay, let's go. Full stop. stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But, <laughs> you kind of told us that 40 minutes ago, Mark. But I prefer Things in Death House to the other two albums because it has. It's got that kind of youth. It's got, got that kind of reckless, reckless abandon to it. It's got it's quite, the lyrics are yeah. quite naive in a lot of ways, which I quite like. It's it's got a lot more life to it than than the Distillers, the, the self-titled first album did. I like it because it's as incomplete as a record, I think, but it also shows that she's a very good pop songwriter, a good pop rock songwriter, and that's evident yeah. in, a lot, in a few of the songs on Sing Sing Death House. It's more evident in Coral yeah. in Coral Fang. But I don't think that album hangs together as well as this one. I think we also need to say about the lineup change after the first album. Yeah. So when they brought out Sing Sing Death House, that was recorded with Casper, Brody, Ryanson, and Andy Grinelli. And Andy at the time had been in the Nerve Agents, which were also a brilliant punk, like a kind of horror punk band on Hellcat Records. Nothing. 
So still surrounding Brody with Hellcat people. Yeah. But when the album came out, Casper left the band not long after that and then Tony joined so he joined them to tour and play gigs but wasn't actually featured on the album Yeah um, and Casper's actually on one of the songs on this as well she actually does uh, yep. verse and, and hate me but uh, we'll, we'll get, oh, I suppose we'll come back to that but yeah so it starts as sick of it all which kind of does feel a little bit, a little bit like rancid Unlike Rancid, it's just a lot more muscular. Like it's a, it's like a much bigger sounding song. Um, it, it's got the same kind of feel. It's got that kind of proper like late nineties SoCal feel, which Rancid never yeah. really had. It's kind of more akin to Bad Religion, but it's still got the same kind mm-hmm. of melo- melodic Woo! thing. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There you go. Someone said it and it wasn't me. Um, yeah, and I, I, we've spoken about it. I'll just bring it up again. She sounds like Courtney Love, like singing Joan Jett or Joan Jett doing Courtney Love, whatever you, whatever yeah. you want to do. Yeah. That's why I like her voice so much. And like I said, I can totally forgive the Aussie doing an, an American accent. And I think the chorus is pretty cool as well. I think it's a quite a good song. It's a good opener. Um, does anybody yeah, want to Yeah, it's a brilliant you? opener. And it was also the first track on the Give Him The Boot 3 compilation. So it was well recognised that this is a really punchy opener, a strong song, absolutely brilliant vocals on it, so strong. The bass line in it is, sounds really strong as well. And that Give Him The Boot compilation, the liner notes was a huge poster of Brody that you could fold out and I was saying to Mark earlier, I was surprised he didn't have it on his bedroom wall because I think every yeah, other teenager did. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah. And then it's got the next song's I Am A Revenant, which is actually, that's actually the first song I'd heard by the Stillers. I, I think somebody sent me it on MSN Messenger. Like you got to check out this band. Is it alright? Cool. Oh, is that yes. something you were trying to like pure, <laughs> pure chat up? But like, yes. What kind of hang you listen So I, I heard it. And I was like, holy shit, that's really good. And then afterwards, I went to Kazaa. Mm-hmm. Remember Kazaa? Um, and, and downloaded a handful of tracks from this record. So I'd never actually heard this record in full until like many years later when I had a faster. Oh my connection. god! Yeah, totally. I I was so hyped for this CD coming out. It came out just around my 16th birthday. I remember going up the town with my pals on a Saturday afternoon, going into the Virgin Records or Virgin Music, whatever it was, on Argyle Street and picking that up at the same time <laughs> as I picked up the Tiger Army Early Years EP and just being so hyped because the two things just epitomised what I was into at that time. So I've got my I've got my pal John <laughs> to thank for that. I don't think he listens, but I'll tell him to listen for this episode. <laughs> to me, the main riff in this song sounds a bit like The Offspring, but is that maybe just Bad Religion by an R name? <laughs> Hard to say, really. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, like the drive, I, like, I like the driving rhythm of the song, and the chorus is fucking massive. Not just mm-hmm. in the amount of vocals that are in it, but also it's just super catchy. And straight away, these first two songs, this record, you can tell this is a step up songwriting-wise from the first album. It's more focused mm-hmm. on... And like you said, Chris, you're probably right, like, Somebody at a major label had seen on the first record, these guys have got something and they've been told, do an album, 
then come to the major. Clearly, Brody is writing with that end goal in mind at this point. So the f- whole first half of this record is full of fucking slamming choruses. Yeah, I think S- Seneca Falls is a particularly good. Oh yes. One every I, I sound like such a cliche saying this, but every year when it comes around International Women's Day, I always end up sharing that on Facebook or something because it's just so amazing, so rebel rousing the lyrics in it. I just love it so so much. I like that. I like I like I like that it's like talking about feminist activists, but also it's a little bit naive, and that's also another reason why I like it. Um, Valerics could could, yeah. also, could be a little bit more thought provoking, I guess. But you know, she's in her early twenties. She's doing. She's like trying to have a voice. I yep. like that about it. And the chorus, you're mm-hmm. right, it's huge. And you can see the evolution here. Like I just said, like the mo- the melodies in this song are tighter than anything in the first album. It just feels a lot more ambitious from a songwriting point of view as well. Um, yeah, the young crazy mm-hmm. feeling is. I fucking adore that song. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I have one major reservation about the song. You spoke about naive lyrics, right? And see end. that bit in it, which oh. is like my my name is Brody. Like I know, I know, I know. Right. It's a total youthful naivety, man. Absolutely. But um, it's a good reflection on how she got to where she was, and I, th- I find that really endearing. I find this song even now, like some. Almost twenty years since it came out, I find it really. I find like a really endearing song. It's got like a descending kind of changeover bit towards the end, which is a total mm-hmm. pop, like SoCal pop punk like staple. But it doesn't really sound yeah. like a pop punk song. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, there's the lyric in it, I've got freedom in my youth. I mean, yeah, she's not trying to be discreet about the fact that she's a young woman, she's telling the story of her life, and she's being punk in her way about it, and you've got to respect that about her. She did it well. Now, see earlier on when I was saying about, I think they're at their best when they can, she does the strong, gruff vocal, but you can't, Pin it to the Courtney mm. Love thing. I think the the title track, Sing Sing Death House, the next one, is one of the best That's examples good. of that. Really leaning into her style. But yet she leans into her style without there being any mimicry, as, as far as I can tell, and I really enjoy that when she does that. I'm half catching that, Chris, because the enunciation of every single lyric in this song is pure Tim Armstrong. Not so much the London thing, but the way that he slurs when he sings a lot, that she does that a lot in this song. I, I hate to say that because I fucking love this song. This was the second. This is the first song I downloaded of Kaza <laughs> for some reason. It was, it was yes. this one. Uh, after after John has sent me, I am a Revenant, and I love this song. It's great. The lyrics are complete fucking nonsense. Don't get me wrong, but the chorus is cool as hell. I don't know if it's aged very well though, because it sounds very to early two thousands. No, I mean I think for me it's um, 
it's hard for me to listen to these songs now and separate them from listening to them as a teenager and being so hyped and so into them to then listen to them now as an adult I don't think I can analyse them properly without going back to my interpretation as a teenager maybe if I heard these songs now for the first time I would feel differently about them and the way that they were written maybe I wouldn't respect them as much but I just get pure nostalgia when I listen to this stuff because I was so deeply immersed in it at the time and I absolutely love it all still but that said there's a lot of bands that I listened to back then that I would never even bother listening to now and I would still love to hear the distillers anytime now yeah the next one's Bullet in the Bullseye which that bass tone by the way I fucking hate that bass tone Just something about it which makes me cringe. It's a good bass choice. Yeah, a guy can play. It's like a yeah, bit of a showcase. Guy can play. I think it sounds like something off the, the, the self titled Rancid album, the, the 2001. But the lyrics don't sit well with me in this song. I'm not, it's not, I'm not a fan of this one. I think it could be taken off record. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. It's only a minute and 12 seconds. Yeah. So it's over pretty quickly. Some of the other songs that we've been talking about, like the first four songs are over three minutes long. Mm-hmm. So it, it's awful short and it's, yeah, kind of forgettable, to be honest. Luckily, though, it's followed by the, Avengers. the big one. The big one. City of Angels Big mega banger yeah. at the time It's their most listened to song on Spotify as well With 15 million listens Wow I am surprised yeah. I, I remember it was but It was on the uh, The Casey Chaos Refuse Music Compilation uh, Yes Yeah And yeah. it was like <laughs> Oh really? Was, no, uh, yeah, I absolutely <laughs> loved the song right, yeah. When it, when it uh, was on that It was like One of the ones That I would always go to You know One day we're going to do Yeah that was a, a life changer Compilation mixed it Yeah But the thing I, I went to Oh yeah Yeah, yeah. Alas, I went to Inverness HMV and there was no distillers, but there was Nasum. So my life was changed forever. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> was there uh, was dude. there not a virgin no, there was, store? There was HMV and then there was DR, oh. re- DR Records, which everybody said drug-related records. That was the little independent vinyl <laughs> shop that also sold uh, baggy jeans and chains and definitely weed from under the desk. But yeah. yeah. So the, the the production on this song is significantly different to the rest of the record. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's, it's built for, yeah. it's built to be a single like son, sonically. Yeah, well, it would have probably been remixed because somebody would have heard it and yeah. be like, right, okay, spend extra time on that, get it radio compressed so it can can mm. stand it. Yeah, it's totally different, but it's obviously because it was a single, they recorded a music video for mm. it, but they also recorded a music video for the Young Crazed Peeling, mm. but didn't release that as a single which I thought was really weird. And when I was trying to find out a bit more information about that, I saw in Discogs that there was a DVD release of Young Crazed Peeling in the City of Angels that also had an MTV (laughs) news segment for You Hear It First for the distillers. 
Um, so maybe they kind of released that like a single, and it was a legitimate release. It's not a bootleg or anything. It was through Hellcat. Totally bizarre. That is pretty These were different yeah. times, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> but like we said, it's a complete, it's a tune, an absolute tune. It's it's a great song. Oh, See yeah. my my, fav- my favorite bit about this song, and I think it's maybe the best thing they do full stop in their career is for the last chorus. Key there's a, a no, no, there's a, there's an extra high chant like kind of gang vocal. Yes, that, yes. It's kind of contrapuntal to the rest of the vocals and it just kind of overlaps. It's just really anthemic. It's a great little... I don't know who came up with that. They were maybe just humming it in their head in the background while people were mixing, but it's a brilliant um, It's quite That's quite a common thing for Hellcat bands of that time. Tiger Army did it. Um, Roger Meary and the Disasters. Probably lots of F- other bands like that. They did that kind of sound, so... Yeah, it was quite common in that style of punk at that time. It, it's got a wee hint of oi to it, I guess, yeah, yeah. because of it, but it's just enough. I think it's a brilliant. It is. I loved the music video for this. I remember being so obsessed with it at the time. I was at a house party, and um, every time it came on P Rock, yeah, the best remember one. that channel? Yeah, um, <laughs> I'd like run to the telly and be sitting watching it, pure excited by it. Couldn't believe that this punk band that I'd been listening to for a couple of years before it were then on the telly. That was fascinating for me. And um, the music video was filmed in Clifton's cafeteria in LA. So when I was there, in October 2015, they had just refurbished and reopened Clifton's and I went down there and got my husband to take a photo of me in the booth that uh, the music video was filmed in. So yeah, lots of nostalgia for that song. It's then followed by Young Girl, which is more fully formed in the secret track on the first record. It's a really nice tune. The lyrics are kind of weird. It's like an ode to Lost Youth, like you said earlier on, Anna. Um, yeah. But I think it's a cool song. It, it's maybe not, it's yeah, not as like immediately it. catchy as the other ones, but it hangs together really well as a tune, and it's clearly been worked on a lot more since the last record. Yeah. I think it sits yeah. quite nicely. Yeah, and the way that it's a bit softer than the other songs, um, it doesn't immediately open with like punchy guitars or bass line. It's building up this, the lyrics in it, you know it, the way that the actual musical aspect of the song fits with the lyrics really nicely, mm-hmm. so I think it's it's good and it's well placed I think after City of Angels trying to gradually get you back into the shout air stuff Yeah but then they hit you with three hardcore punk songs basically back to back <laughs> Yeah <laughs> You've got Hate Me, which has got, like I said earlier on, it's got Casper on the first verse doing vocals, which is why it sounds really kind of weird but cool. And then Bodie on the second verse. It's like a really super intense song. Um, it's got a cool lead line in the second chorus as well at the end, which I think is quite nice. It's kind of over before it's really begun. And then you've got Desperate after that as well, which has some cool guitar tones. Yeah. 
Yeah, a minute and 22 seconds. Hate Me is only a minute and 10, but Desperate's good. I think it follows on really well from Hate Me. I would say the songs aren't too dissimilar mm -hmm. from each mm -hmm. other, but I like that. I think that it flows. We've got I Understand. Which is again a kind of about her upbringing, I suppose. It's kind of chaotic, this song, which is probably reflective for the lyrics, to be honest. It's got that really cool middle section where it breaks down and it goes slower before going back into the big chorus and then slows down for half time after that as well which is really nice it actually reminds me of really early Bad Religion like first album stuff yeah I mean it's okay it's um, the last song that I like on the album Lordy Lordy that reminds me of the Pogues for some reason Fuck man, it's just <laughs> <laughs> that is it. It just doesn't fit with any distiller song or sound ever. It's like a pure. Yeah. It's like Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer doing their impersonations of pub singers. <laughs> I, I've written. Oh god. It's kind of like scab without the horns and using distorted guitars. It's it's you know, kind of jaunty. It's, it's, it's odd. Oh, <laughs> It's not jaunty in a good way. See, for me, it's just, it's like... Uh, and I got your mic. <laughs> it's like... Just throwing her head about. It's like, um, at the time, everybody was into flogging Molly and the dropkick. Yeah, sounds like that. Yeah. All of that. Right. See, for me, it's just like how at the time people were in Flog and Molly and the Dropkick Murphys and all of that full Celtic <laughs> pish that's how it sounds and I don't like it and it doesn't fit with the album and I find it highly disappointing that they would end on such yeah, a bum note I, I agree, I agree So, so we, we're you. agreed that this <laughs> album is fine then <laughs> <laughs> oh no way, man! It's a good choice. Good choice, Mark. Well, I mean, I don't think Cor I think Coral Fang is just as inconsistent. I think the first half of Coral Fang is full of complete bangers as well, but I think it really peters out towards the end. But even more so because the last three songs for me they just barely happen, and then you've got Death Sex at the end, which is just fucking madness. I, I quite like Death Sex. Yeah, so so there's like noise. a minute and a half of a song, <laughs> song there. Yeah, and it's just then it's just random weirdness, like for yeah, <laughs> for I'm into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is into that. To be fair, he's yeah, got previous in that. Yeah. So yeah. as I go back to my original point, is I don't think the Distillers have made an entirely consistent album. However, the singles are fucking amazing, and I think that yeah. I think that they're worth nominating not just for that, but also because I think they are unsung as a band. Well, also, and how you know, immensely very, influential she was as a figurehead. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, that's what's going to say. She is. She is. Yeah. yeah, that I think that's a bigger point. Like Dave's saying, there's. I, I don't want to speak for women here, but I can imagine there are few bands as a young female punk fan or punk enthusiast that are as inspiring. As, as the Distillers or Brody Dill generally like, Oh totally just... See for me at the time I was a massive punk fan But I wasn't In terms of modern punk bands There weren't that many modern punk bands That I was into that had female vocalists Because I've said to you before I don't like 
the higher sounding female vocals that's not what I'm into so to hear somebody who sounded like Joan Jett or any of the female vocalists that we mentioned earlier it was so different for me and my friends were into the Riot Girls stuff like the Tigra and bands like that and it just wasn't my thing so to find someone with such a powerful voice who played in a fantastic punchy punk band who was beautiful wore really cool clothes she was just the epitome of cool for me at the time and then continued actually to be somebody that I really thought was amazing for so long you know I'm talking about when I went to see her just a few years ago for her solo stuff she's someone that I would always continue to follow what she does and I find her to be someone who's really musically interesting and cool I think I quoted Alice written a lot of amazing songs. I picked the Distillers record, which is my favourite Distillers record. But th- th- that is about a greater point. Like, the Distillers are hugely influential. Spinneret and Brody Dow solo stuff, clearly less so. As an individual, she's obviously extremely influential. I do think that this record should be in discography because of that. I do think Coral Fang is a slightly better record, but I agree with you that I think this band should be represented and Brody Dow especially should be represented for her ability as a, a songwriter and especially, as you say, a, a writer of great singles. Albeit, with that caveat, I, I'm going to say yes because I'm not sure that we'd come back to Coral Fang and I think it would be it would be a bit of a sin if there wasn't some representation overall. Yeah, I think Coral Fang is certainly not an unsung album. It, it, disagree. Really? Strong disagree. Really? Yeah, absolutely. It's so well 94, known. 90, number 94 in the US. Yeah, at, at the time that it came out, but they gained so much traction after that. And when people talk about the distillers, it's songs off of Coral Fang that are the ones that are the big numbers. Yeah, but not not compared to their peers. Aye, yeah, that's That's a good question. Who are the Distillers peers, though? Yeah, so maybe you're right, yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree with Chris. I think I'd be more likely to listen to Coral Fang, but I totally agree that they should go in and she needs good representation. Can I... I just want to throw a total curveball in here. I like the... I like (laughs) the... kind of like the poppier, rockier stuff rather than the punkier stuff by the Distillers, right? And... When I was on holiday with my parents in Mallorca in 2001, we went into the supermarket and I just picked up a random CD and it was this uh, Spanish punk rock band, female fronted, they were called Dover. I ended up, I bought the album, took it home and me and all my pals just fucking loved it and listened to it all the time. The album was called I Was Dead for Seven Weeks in the City of Angels, funnily enough. And this came out in September 2001. (laughs) And it's like a little bit more poppy and there's a song that sounds like Green Day on it and there's some acoustic guitar. But if you like the sort of poppier end of Distillers, I would highly recommend going and finding this record. I don't even think it's on Spotify. It's like, yeah, it's a lost Spanish punk rock classic. But yeah, go and find that. That's cool. That's mad. Can I just check something? So, do, uh, yeah, Spanish it's in the town, Dover. Dover. D-O-V-E-R. 
Dauber. Yeah, so no, Dauber. No, right. no, Dauber. Well, that makes Dauber. it even better. Be fantastic. Yes. <laughs> if you're Scottish, that that just that, that was a big payoff at the end of the episode. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, did you guys get? Yeah. Record? So, Mark, you have to yes. go first. It's your record. This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this for us? Not good for- Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Last week, mm-hmm. Vicky Henry picked uh, <laughs> Brack from Space Coast, Coast. Coast. Hannah Barbera character. Coast to coast, yeah. So, uh, Mark, you're first. Yeah, so, um, Brody Dow appeared on a Garbage song, Girls Talk, and Manson, Shelley Manson from Garbage, also appears on Brody Dow's solo album. Shelley Manson actually appeared on an episode of Space Ghost in 1998, and it's called Curses, and she's also on it alongside Moby. <laughs> <laughs> and on the episode, um, <laughs> Space Ghost is driven to eat all of his guests. <laughs> um, so that's my link, it's only two, but yeah, I've always that was good. have done a quick one so. for a while, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, am I allowed to mention myself in this? <laughs> Have we done that before? Go for it. Uh, oh, so, funnily enough, point. I went yes. to Garbage and Shirley Manson as well after the Distillers. Garbage in 2018 played in Edinburgh, supported by the Edinburgh band Honeyblood. And Honeyblood, at one point, I put them on in the art school in Glasgow. And then another artist that I've put on is a man called Romeo Taylor. Scotland, <laughs> yes. best musical export right now. Romeo Taylor, a year and a half ago, <laughs> yes. supported the artist Tiffany. Tiffany is in I Think Tiffany We're Alone Now. Uh, I think you're alone and now. she absolutely oh loved him. And he, he was confused as to why he was there, but it was great. <laughs> Tiffany also appeared in Jetsons the movie as Judy Jetson in 1990. Uh, yeah, that was a oh, wow. 1990 really? animated wow. A movie version of the Jetsons and yet that was a Hanna-Barbera Hanna movie, yeah. uh, movie. Hanna-Barbera of course produced uh, Space Ghost Brack Well yeah Hanna-Barbera owned uh, made the original cartoons and Space Ghost yep. Coast to Coast as a cannibalisation of them and Brack appeared in the Council of Evil or, or Council of Doom or whatever the fuck it was in that original series uh, Anna, do you want to go or will I? Um, I'll go because yours are always the best. <laughs> so we'll hey! save the best to last. <laughs> Plan. Plan. I'm done, I'm quitting. We start off with Brody and the Distillers and they were on Hellcat Records, as we've mentioned. Also on Hellcat Records were Lars Friedrichsen and the Bastards. Lars Friedrichsen along with Mick 13... Davey Havoc, Mike Durnt, Trey Cool, Billy Joe Armstrong and a whole host of other Californian musicians were voice actors in the stop motion animated musical independent film Live Freaky, Die Freaky, which is a black comedy based on the Charles Manson murders. Billy Joe Armstrong 
was also a voice actor in an episode of King of the Hill. Did not know that. Really? And Fox broadcast King of the Hill. And CNN newsreader Chris Como used to work for Fox Fox nah, News. So he started at Fox he News. He started right, at as like a junior, and then he got signed by signed by CNN. He's a guy that just got uh, coronavirus. By the way, he's like been doing daily updates about his condition. And how's he quick. feeling? Is he doing okay? All <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> he got um, what are they called. Uh, is it Rigers or something like that? It's like the the violent. Oh uh, yeah, shit. the reaction that your yeah, organs it, have, yeah. It, so he got that so bad that he he, he chipped, uh, he broke off part of one of his teeth. Oh my oh, god, dude. that's awful! From, from the physical shakings and stuff like that. Yeah, that's terrible. But his brother, his brother Andrew Cuomo, is the governor ah. of New York. He's that guy that's been on TV, being amazing. Oh, that's you know, good. Doing all the yeah. shit that Donald Trump should be doing. Should be doing. Should be doing. Anyway, sorry. So, I, so the Chris, yeah. Chris Cuomo is it CNN now? Yeah, uh, and CNN is owned by Warner, who right. um, own Adult Swim, which puts out or put out the Brack Show. Job done. Yeah, yeah great. Uh, all right, um, Distillers. Uh, Brody Dal was married to Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong. He was. was we should have mentioned that. We should have talked about that <laughs> at some point. Uh, you know um, what? Tim Armstrong's actually also in Live Freaky Die Freaky, <laughs> but I didn't mention that because I thought I'll try and avoid it. But since you've came back to it as well, uh, he's had too much airtime. But I need him right now. Uh, I'm just using him. Uh, so in 2012, Rancid played at uh, Flea's 50th birthday party in LA. Uh, alongside the Red Hot Chili Peppers, obviously, because Flea plays his own birthday parties, because that's what you do. Uh, that was actually like a fundraiser as well for a music school that Flea runs called Silver Lake Conservatory. Part of that, by the way, was they auctioned off a Banksy, which I think they got about $100,000 for, mm. uh, to raise money for the school. Anyway, that party was attended by, as you can imagine, all kinds of like movers and shakers, including Rick Rubin, uh, the actor Owen Wilson, uh, and the actor Ed Norton. Ed Norton was the star of the movie American History X. In the film American History X, they mention a whole bunch of gangs and groups from LA, including uh, the Lil Locos, the Big Locos, and V13. And both those Locos are kind of subsidiaries of V13, which is like one of the bigger kind of Hispanic gangs in in that part of Los Angeles. Uh, V standing for Venice, as in Venice Beach. So the Venice 13. Now, you might have heard of a fella called Mike Muir. Mm. Psycho Michael. No. I don't know. Anyone? No, sorry. Right. Psycho Michael is the, the, the lead singer of the group. Suicide oh, Tendencies. Right. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Amory Smith, who's a member of that band, at Suicidal Tendencies have got a ridiculous number of people that have passed through that band, including Robert Trillio, who's now at... Uh, They're right a place for them now. Do you know who's in the band um, now? I'd imagine it's like drums Buckethead... And Ben Weinman from... from George from Bush. From Delta Escape Plan plays guitar for them. He's he's covering for a guitarist yeah. just now, apparently, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so Emery Smith was in the original lineup and in the original band photos. And in those original band photos for Suicidal Tendencies, Emery Smith was wearing a baseball cap and a bandana under it. And the bandana said V13. Now, that caused loads of problems because people saw him as wearing gang colours and, like, a gang colours of a really quite a dangerous group. And it turned out he'd actually just borrowed that bandana from uh, one of the other guys in the band's brother. 
who was a member or affiliated with V13. And they, they went through this whole controversy because people thought they were endorsing or somehow affiliated with this gang that at the time was in the news along with our, I think Santa Monica had a 13 as well, the SM13. And uh, they, they were all in the news at that time in, in the States. Suicidal tendencies denied any real involvement. That's where that whole suicidal psychos yeah. following mm-hmm. came from as well. Anyway, long story short, suicidal tendencies were covered in 2018 on an album t- titled Dr. Tomentos Covered in Punk, which was this really wacky group of artists doing various famous punk songs. And the track Institutionalized by Suicidal Tendencies was covered by Brack. Oh. Well, there you go. Wow. There he is. That's why he's the best. And you know that's you know that's getting cut in right now because it's fantastic. <laughs> you should talk about it. You'll feel a whole lot better. And I go, no, it's okay. You know, I'll figure it out. Just leave me alone. I'll figure it out. You know, I'll just work it out myself. And they go, well, you know, if you want to talk about it, I'll be here, you know, and you'll probably feel a lot better. <laughs> Right, so uh, we're done, and that means, Dave, uh, it's your choice next week. Uh, all right, yeah, I'm going to go back to dance music for a bit, I think. Go do uh, Daft Punk's debut album, Homework. Uh, oh, oh, excellent. That's okay. a left turn. Pretty legendary. Pretty legendary. I mean, we're arguing about 94 in the US charts for distillers, is that? Mm. Yeah, that but we'll, I mean, it's critically acclaimed, but compared to Daft Punk, the sort of mainstream pop act that they are now, this is a legendary dance album that I don't think anybody that likes Get Lucky will have listened to at all. <laughs> that's, so. that's true. That's a fair point. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, that'll be yeah, an well, interesting one. Anna, thanks yeah, for thank joining you. us. Thanks. Fantastic. Thanks very That's much. A pleasure. Thank you. Oh, we better do a Nexus. Oh. For next week. Uh, got it. There you go. In fact, there's video evidence I'm doing this and not just making these yeah, up. definitely right we would say that though because we're all on video chat with them. Anna, tell me when to stop. Uh, stop! <laughs> okay, you guys can read it. I'm not even okay. going to read it. Can I read it's it? It's going to be back yeah. to front, is it? No. It's, it's upside, upside down. <laughs> Davy Bright has suggested, or Davy Bridget Bright Davey Bright has suggested Oscar Pistorius. Oh! oh. He's not been in the news for a wee while, so big Oscar we've got to get from Daft Punk to Big Oscar next week. Alright guys, thank you very much. That was a pleasure. Thank Thank you. I hope everybody is well. Stay Stay safe. safe. Anna, you keep setting uh, setting the standard for (laughs) self-isolation. Well, yeah, I mean that's me. I've not been living normal life for the last month and yeah, slowly adapting to it. It's not it's not too bad. I'm busier now than I ever was when I was out in the real world, so <laughs> <laughs> So there's hope for us all. Oh, Alright guys. Take All right. care. Bye bye. Bye.